The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. I want you to turn your attention this evening to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, that's where we're going to spend all of our time this evening. We may move just once or twice, but not very often. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I want to mention or bring to your mind at least the topic or the idea that the church is to be a serving church. You might remember in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, after all that is said about the church and the way it was functioning, even in its infancy there in Acts chapter 2, after those 3,000 souls were added, it said, praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved or were being saved, the American Standard Version says. Now, I want to focus on that phrase. Of course, we're in 1 Thessalonians, but I want to focus on that phrase in your minds, at least, that they were having favor with all the people. Why is that? Well, it's twofold. We need not uh, miss on one occasion. We have to understand it's because of their love. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, which is not a new commandment, that you love one another with a pure heart firmly. He added to that, By this may all men know that ye are my disciples. So certainly in Acts chapter 2, they had favor among the people because they loved one another. But one of the things the early church did, as well as the church ought to continue to do today, is to be a big part of service, service to our fellow man. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to get out and pass out waters on a hot day, although nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean that you have to go and rebuild someone's house that has collapsed, although that might be wonderful to do. It just simply means that we put ourselves forward, put ourselves out to the community and to those to whom we're exposed to on a daily basis, whether it be in the schools, the workplaces, or just out in the local businesses, to let them know that the church here is here to serve them. Now, as a disclaimer, I'll say this, and you already understand this. The service that we do, albeit sometimes coming through physically, materially, is much better done because of the spiritual aspect of it. When I worked in Philadelphia, Mississippi, many churches have something similar to this. We had a food pantry where people brought items and put them in the pantry. We had a different item or so each week. We stacked those things in, and we very often had people come by. But one of the things I was always careful to do, because I was typically there at the building when they came by, anyone would do the same. We made sure that while they were there, we would let them pick through, get what they needed, get what they wanted. We would offer them uh, perhaps some other assistant too. But we tried to make sure while they were there that they knew that our primary focus and concern was not their physical mouths, but their spiritual minds. We need to know that. But when we think about the church and the service that it does, the faithful church of Christ is a serving church. We're going to find a great example of what that is about here in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Of course, the apostle Paul was obviously, we can go ahead and assume, and we can even see it based upon the letters that we'd write, he was very fond of all the churches to which he was involved, even those who didn't remain so faithful. For example, the Corinthians, they gave Paul uh, headaches, and if you want to see it that way, fits while he was there, and they continued to do the same after he left. The Ephesian brethren at some point would be something like that. But he was fond of all of them, particularly two basic, two uh, very basic churches, or if you will, infant churches, that of the church at Philippi, and likewise the church in Thessalonica. Why would the Apostle Paul, being the man that he was, 
being the servant, that's a key, the servant that he was, be impressed by this people. I'll assure you, however, whatever falls impressed with the port of church at Thessalonica are the same things that God or Paul or, or anybody in the community today might be impressed with by the local church at Weaver, or that is, in any given place. Begin reading with the first Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read just the first few verses of this, beginning there in verse 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1. It says here, Paul and Sabanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, which is which is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's where he begins to think tell us that he is a priest of them. He says, Thanks. We give thanks to God always for you all, making the mention of you in our prayers. Remembering, verse 3, without ceasing, your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sign of God our Father, knowing, brethren, that you're, knowing, brethren, your beloved, your election of God. And we're going to pause right there just basically verses 1 to 3 mainly, although we read on through verse 4. And I want to present to you five or six, depending on our time, five or six things that made the church in Thessalonica a serving church, just as we ought to be. Number one is very basic, and he mentions it quickly. He says these people in Thessalonica, likewise we ought to be, the serving church is an energetic church. I mean by that we have some energy about us. Now I realize that as we go older, we get to a point where we're less feeble or more feeble than we once were. We don't necessarily have the mobility. We don't necessarily have uh, the same physical talents as we probably once did or at least once thought that we did. But at the same time, we ought to have an energy about us that is noticed and felt by the world around us. I've asked the question before, and I think it needs to continue to be asked of myself as well as others. What is it about my life that would make my neighbors jealous if they could only see into it? Now, I'm not speaking of our homes and our vehicles and our dogs and our children or anything like that. I mean spiritually speaking. What is it about our lives that would make the world look into us and say, well, here's a people that are energetic. Here's a people who have caught my attention. Whatever it is that they're practicing religiously, maybe they even get that idea, that it's based upon our religion. Whatever it is they're practicing religiously, that makes their lifestyle or their livelihood attractive. Now, I want you to notice with me this idea of them being energetic, first of all, and it's identification. These people, it said of them that they were being remembered, verse 3, without ceasing, for their work of faith. What is it to have a work of faith? Now, I'm not trying to get too uh, deep down commentary-ish in saying this. We can put it just right on the surface and get what we need. We have to understand that faith is that which works. In James chapter 2, you can mark this in your margin for me with it, hopefully. But in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14 through the end of the chapter, verse 26, there's a discussion set forth concerning one man named Abraham. Now, there'll be other characters involved as we get down to about verse 25 or so. But primarily the focus on Abraham, and it speaks of his works. As a matter of fact, there's a fictitious man that precedes him that is a man who says he has faith, supposedly, and hath not works. 
James begs the question by inspiration and said, can that faith, that is a mouth-only faith, can that faith save him? He begins to ask questions such as, what if someone comes to you and is destitute and naked and needing a food and clothing, if you will, and comes to you and says, give me this, give me that, I need your help and assistance. What if you just said, well, go, go about your bay and be warmed and filled? That, that faith can't save you. Neither was Abraham in the next example, the real live person, if you will, notable example, neither was he saved simply based upon a faith that was nothing more than a mental asset or a thought process about or toward God. No, time and time again, beginning back in Genesis chapter 12, culminating fully, we might more notably see it, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham was a man of faith who acted upon the faith that he had. Hebrews chapter 11 as a whole, we've noted sometimes as faith hall of fame. Every one of those characters, if you begin all the way back with Abel, even through the latter of those that are not even named, every one of the characters in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, by faith they did blank. The church is identified. Likewise, the church here in Corinth is known for the work of faith, but not just that. He secondarily says they're known for their labor of love. Now I want you to underline and notate that word labor in your mind because I, I know that we understand it. Certainly we understand it on the onset. We put labor and work right there beside one another. And I'm not taking away from anybody. As a preacher, most of my labor, if you will, at least in the fields of preaching, has to do with this book right here. I'm not necessarily out digging a ditch. I'm not necessarily hammering nails. I'm not necessarily doing this or that. And so I'm not making fun or poking fun at anybody. But the word labor that is used here means intense toil and sweat of the brow. I'm not going to claim that's a part of my life every day. I'm not afraid of it. Matter of fact, I've been known by some as being one who is so comfortable with work, I could fall asleep right beside it. We're talking about a labor of love. Now, again, that means an intense toil and sweat of the brow. That is what the church is to be about. We're to have some level of energy. Now, again, that may not be exactly what it once was. For you, it may not be possible to do exactly what you once did, but yet that same labor, that same intense toil needs to be there. Now, how is it to be there? You say, well, I don't walk as well as I could. I, I don't move around as well as I once did. That, that probably and likely the case with some of you. But can you use your mind to work? Would you be willing to put your sweat of your brow into a study with someone, maybe a neighbor? To spend your time with a family member, maybe one who's lost, who maybe for whatever reason, I don't know who, who would be to blame. You might blame yourself for some of it, but for whatever reason, they've not really been able to understand or to know the God of this book. Friends, these people here in Thessalonica, they were known. Their identification really was based upon their what he calls here their work of faith, their labor of love. But then he says there's also with them the patience of hope. You've heard it defined biblically. You would probably define it the same, that hope is not a simple desire. It is a desire coupled with an expectation. My wife cannot eat pizza. Pizza happens to be probably my favorite food when it's done right, no doubt. I like other foods. I like vegetables. I'm not just a junk food addict or anything like that. Matter of fact, I probably eat a lot less of that than I once did. But my wife cannot eat pizza. 
So if I were to say, I hope when I get home, we're having pizza for supper, that's not a real hope. As I would say, and you would say in Alabama, it ain't going to happen. But a hope that is desire, a desire coupled with an expectation, that is to imply that I assume that it very well likely and could happen. I would not be surprised if it did. Now, when you think about these people in Thessalonica concerning their energy, they had an energy, yes, based upon a work of faith. Yes, based upon a labor of love, but that brought them to the point progressively of being patient in hope. That is to have an endurance that lasted until hopes could be met. Now these things, each one of these, build upon one another. I've noticed in God's word many a times, and I, I on one hand will teach, and I, I practice this sometimes, that sometimes the word of God can preach, can teach backwards and forwards. Okay? I'll give an example. If you were to go to Ephesians chapter 5, begin about verse 22, as you find out that wives are to submit to their own husbands. And sometimes wives hear that or women hear that and they say, well, you don't know that two-legged devil I live with. There's no way I'm submitting to his will. I won't do what he says. And that very well may be the case with many in the world. But friends, I've taught for years, if you'll begin at the bottom of that chapter and read it backwards, you'll find out why that lady submits. Aside from it being a command of God, and we know that, she would be submissive if that husband were giving his life up for her. That is, he were putting his life ahead of his own, loving his wife as he's commanded to do in verse 25, as Christ loved the church. Now, I just say that to say that, yes, in many terms, the word of God can preach backwards as well as it does forward. But what I'm saying here is about something different. And that is that God's word is always placed in God's order. When God speaks of these people here, and he's doing it by the inspiration, yea, the pen of Paul, and he says that these people were participating or being remembered for the work of their faith, the labor of their love, and because of their patience and hope, those three things come in that order, and you may as well say it, in that order alone. If my faith is not one that is working in me to be reminding me constantly of who God is and what God is, I'm not going to be willing to labor for anything that I supposedly love because I would not love God in that instance. And I'm certainly not going to be seeing a reward in the future that is filled with patient or enduring hope. These things build one upon another. So there is this matter of identification. That's who these people are. In Ephesians 2 and verse 20, the Bible speaks of the church as a whole and says that we are built upon a foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ, therefore, being the chief cornerstone. That's how we're identified. The same letter to the Ephesians speaks of us being a part of the lively stones, which is ultimately the lively hope, basically. That's how the church is built together. So there is the matter of identification, but secondarily here, I want you to understand, there's also the matter of motivation. Again, all of those in Hebrews chapter 11, because of their faith, they were motivated, if you will, to do work. Because of this deep-seated belief and trust, that's what faith is, a trust that they had in God, their work was easy to do. Now, when we serve God, it's not something, and you know this, it's not to be something that we have to uh, be grudge, drudgery, 
uh, be a judgery to us or be something that we regret. I, in general, have always enjoyed the physical works, jobs that I've had. I was in the cabinet industry for 14 years, most of that in supervision. I love that. I said on many occasions to the president of our company, to his face, you know what, if you kept my check off next week, I'd still come back. And I think that was the case to an extent. But then there were other days you couldn't have tripled my money and made me want to be there. It should never be that way with the Lord's work. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, you'll be familiar with it, it says, therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding. That is to bound over in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor, same idea, same word is used here in the middle of this verse, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Number one characteristic of this serving church, the church that serves, the faithful church that serves, is that they are energetic. And that energy sometimes comes just strictly mentally. They have something in their heart that makes them want to do the work of God. But secondarily to that, not of lesser. But second, we notice also in verses six and following, or let's pick up in verse four. Let's not skip over verse four and five. It says, knowing, knowing brethren, their beloved, your election of God. Now you may want to underline that word in your mind or your Bibles because some are fearful of it. For God came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost in much assurance, knowing what manner of men you were among us, among you for your sake. That word election in verse four sometimes causes people problems. That's because there's an entire religious doctrine. There's much more to it than this, but there's a part of an entire religious doctrine that basically says God has chosen the saved for some unknown reason that they cannot explain, by the way, biblically. But God has chosen this certain group to save, and he's going to save them alone, and they would report in that that he's not going to be able to save anyone else, save who he's already foreordained, and that is a biblical word, by the way, and predestinated, that is yet another biblical word, by the way, which all is related to this same word, election, in verse 4. The serving church is a church made up of elected People. Now, here's where there's no problem with that. Some of these people who teach that idea are trying to get across the mindset that, you know, God has chosen us. There's nothing I can do to be saved, yet there's nothing I can do to be lost. And they carry a doctrine far beyond that. But when they teach those basic premises, they overlook the fact that we understand an election in our everyday lives. In our country, now, I, sometimes I think things are rigged, but let's look at it as if it weren't. In our country, we have what we call elected officials. Whether they be on a very local level, you may have a county commissioner, you may have a police chief, we have governors, we have senators, we have representatives, and such as that. We have congressmen, we even have presidents. And each of those are reportedly an elected official. What does that mean? It means supposedly the people sat down and got to pick out of their own mind who they wanted to fill that spot. Now, how do we do that? Well, I'm afraid many people in that realm of things, they say, well, I, I, I know uh, I'm supposed to vote Democrat or I'm supposed to vote Republican. And they, they don't know who was on either ticket. That's sad. <clears throat> But the way we properly do that is we look at those supposed to be elected officials 
and we set standards in our mind and say, if they meet these criteria, or at least the majority of these criteria, why will vote for him or her? And that's generally how we need to do it, at least. And we understand as Christians, those criteria don't come out of our hearts and what we just enjoy. They ought to come out of God's word. Now, that is a problem in our nation, at least now, that our elected officials, the standards may be non-existent. They're certainly not based upon God's word all the time. But you see, this term election or the elect, which is what you and I are to be a part of as Christians, it's just simply to say that God had criteria in mind of the kind of people that he would save, and he intends to save those people. Backing up in the Old Testament, we don't live directly under these commands today, but you look at those Ten Commandments of the Old Testament, it's recorded in Exodus chapter 20, and it's just one place that they're mentioned, Deuteronomy also we would state them. You go through those commands, and if God said, well, I'm going to save those who do not kill, those who do not commit adultery, those who do not bear false witness, those who are not covetous, and you can go through the rest of the ten, if he said, I'm going to save all those who stand by these commandments, he has that liberty. And if that's the only standards he ever set, then someone could say in judgment, well, you know what? I know why brother so-and-so, supposedly, is lost. You say, why is that? Well, he killed me. He said, thou shalt not kill. Or I know why sister so-and-so is lost because she was covetous. And on and on you could go through those ten. Again, God has the liberty and the ability to pre-choose the criteria under which man can be saved. That's what this election is. My wife is a college, I won't say professor, instructor. <laughs> Professors make real money. Instructors apparently don't. But she's a college instructor. And she could get up in front of a class, sadly, any semester probably and say, look, there will be over half of you in this room that are going to fail this class. And she knows that. But she's not condemning anyone to fail. She's just saying, I've got a list of things that are put on this, uh, I want to say thesis, whatever you call that thing they pass out at the beginning of class. Here are these criteria. Here are the tests, the exams. Here are the assignments. And if you'll do these, you'll pass. If not, you're going to fail. She knows some will fail. God's not looking for any failures. <clears throat> so when we think about the serving church, it is an energetic church. It is an elect church. God chooses it. We don't necessarily just choose it all on our own. We can't decide how man is saved. God's already presupposed that. Now, that's just so we wouldn't skip verse 4. <coughs> verse 5, restating it again, rereading it says, For our gospel came not in you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, that's an important word we'll get back to, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your Sakes. Now add to it verse 6. And you became followers of the Lord, having received the word with much affliction in the Holy Ghost. So in you are examples. Now that's our key word. So you were examples in all that believed in Macedonia and Archaea. Now what does that mean? It means these people were not only energetic. They were not only so as we are to be elect. These people were exemplary. That's a bigger word to say they were good examples. I would suppose already, presuppose that each of us in this room, we try our best to be good examples to those around us. 
And we probably are who we are today because someone at some point in our life tried to be a good example to us. Maybe our parents or grandparents or some family members or some friends that said, you know what, I'm going to take the bull by the horns and I'm going to be the best example I can be to this person, this child, or to this young adult or whatever it is. And we understand the importance of a good example. Paul spoke of these people in Thessalonica who are the church there. And he said, these people are good examples. Why? Because they were a part of this with much assurance. That is, they knew in their minds that God was who he said he was. In verse 6, he speaks of them and says, they became followers of the Lord. How is that? Because they're having that they received the word with much affliction. What that implies is, and that word receive, that word means that they open their hearts, and you would not even picture it, is their arms to the word of God. That's that particular uh, Greek word that's translated here, receive. They open their hearts to God. But he says they did that in, in the presence of much affliction. And we understand what it means to be afflicted. That is someone to have something placed upon them that we have malady, difficulty, whatever that is. In their day and time, more than ours, it had to do with persecution probably that went on around them. And it says, even in spite of, you could read it this way or implied this way, in spite of their affliction, <coughs> they received open-armed, open-hearted, the word of God. Friends, that's a good example. That sets a precedent. You know, if we stand back and we serve God as Christians and we serve God in all the good days, all the times when life is easy, we would say in the South when things are hunky-dory and we can live a high, wide, and handsome life, if we serve God in those moments, that's good. But when the world looks in on those lives and they see us doing that, they appreciate it, they may even take notice, but as soon as our lives fall from what we see as ideal, and if we stop serving God or at least stop serving Him faithfully, what's going to happen to their faith that at this point is only living through us? It's going to, going to vanish. It's going to be gone. They were examples because they served the living God in much Affliction. You know, Christ suffered for us so that he could be an example. Peter tells us about that. We understand that each of these Old Testament characters that we sometimes use, Romans 15, 4 speaks of those and says, what sort of things are written aforetime or written for our learning? Now, it doesn't use the word example in that text, but it says that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. What do we learn from, from Abraham? What do we learn from Isaac? What do we learn from David? What do we learn from uh, all of these other Bible Old Testament characters? We learn that they serve God in spite of their afflictions. And Christ stood as the preeminent. That is the main, if you will, example of what that was to be like. He stood in spite of what would eventually come of him. Now, if you notice this for what it means, I'm going to look back at verse 6. It says, they became followers of God, having received the word of in much affliction. Number one, they knew how to receive the word of God. When you understand that, you also learn that they knew likewise, and we're going to move across the page for this, at least in my uh, copy of the Testament here. They also learn how to respect the word of God. You're in chapter one and verse six is where we're focusing. Uh, jump across or turn, whatever you have to do to get to chapter two. 
Look at chapter 2 and verse 13 beginning, speaking of the same context to the same people. Here's what it stated. For this cause also we thank God without ceasing. That's basically a mirror image of what he said in verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. He says, for this cause we thank God without ceasing. In that you became, in that because when you received the word of God, same exact word, when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it were the truth. Then it puts in parentheses there, and what I mean by that is not the literal English parentheses we know, but as a side thought to explain it farther, it said, as of the truth, the word of God. What is that contrast? Which effectually worketh when in you that believe. The contrast that comes forth here is that you received the word of God, yes, but you received it as the word of God and not as the word of men. Yes, they received the word of God, but upon receiving it, they likewise respected it. You know, we've got a problem in our society now, and sometimes it surrounds, or at least is blamed on, much of it is blamed on the education system. You take evolution, just for an example. It is reported, at least, that in all of our schools, I'm going to clarify that in a minute, but it is reported that in all of our schools, whether it be from the little elementary children all the way through college, that they're being taught nothing but evolution. That's what's being shoved down their throats. Now, I want to disclaim that by saying the people who stand in pulpits and, and wherever they are and say that, they better check and see if their children really know that or not. My children attend a, a part of a school system where that has never happened. Where the teachers stand up and say, this stuff you're reading in these books, that is baloney right here. You know about God, and that's the truth. My, my children's teachers do that, and we need to appraise and appreciate those teachers and school systems that are still willing to do that. But let me tell you something. If they weren't willing to do that, if I can rear my children in the next generations, but it has to start in my heart, if I could rear my children to know there is a difference between that science book and this book called the Bible, I wouldn't have an issue with that. I'm not saying I wouldn't take issue. I'm just saying that my children would not fail and falter off into the world of evolution or whatever else in humanism, whatever else is eventually involved in that, if they knew. When I read this science book, that's a book. That's a book written by men. Friends, this is a book written by God. It's different. And it takes priority over whatever every other book or man says. Now that's how they respected the Word of God. So this church was exemplary because they received the Word of God, yes. Because they respected the word of God, yes. But then thirdly, we're still in chapter 2 to pick this up for clarity. Verse 14, because they also responded to the word of God. <laughs> Verse 14 says about them, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which is in Jesus Christ. He says you responded to this. You didn't just open your heart and say, give it to me. And then turn around and say, well, that's good. That's God right there. And they're not doing anything with it. You and I as an individual and as we make up the church that meets at Weaver or whatever location I might be in on a weekly or daily basis on the Lord's Day need be made up of people who are energetic, who are elect, 
who are exemplary. Number next here, number four, you could also add, we have to move through this quickly, who are also evangelistic. You don't know it, maybe, or maybe you didn't realize it. I did, and I was only here on two or three occasions during your gospel meeting. That's about what your gospel meeting was about. It was coming from a man who has spent much time in evangelism himself. And I respect that because that's biblical that we do it. In verse 8, we find out what the Thessalonian brethren did, where it adds to it and says, For thee, for you, from whom you, chapter 1 and verse 8, from and far from you, you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia, which wasn't that far off, and Archaea, but also in every place that your faith of God word is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. Friends, these people were a serving church because they were evangelistic. Now, if you were to look on a map, the distance uh, between what we think, and we have to suppose, because some of these cities, the centers have been moved. You probably watched the city of Aniston. There was downtown, but now there's another main street. You know that kind of an idea. But these cities did move around a bit. But where we suppose these two cities were in the ancient of days, that of Macedonia and Archaea, they were about 200 miles apart. Thessalonica was situated just a little bit off center between those two cities. And what Paul says is, look, you people, your evangelistic efforts have gone into Macedonia and they've even gone into Archaea in so much as we didn't have to speak anything in that area. Now, Paul's not saying he didn't go in and teach. We know that he did. That's how he met the brethren in Thessalonica or how the church was started and ultimately how he became familiar with the brethren in Thessalonica. What Paul is saying is when it comes to the basics, we would say the nitty-gritty, we didn't necessarily have to spin our wheels in that. Oh, they had new converts. They had people that they taught about Christ for the first time. There's no denying that. But Paul says you're doing the brunt. The vast majority of that work has already been done, or at least is being done by you in Thessalonica. Now, I've had the opportunity of worshiping in several congregations as I've worked with those congregations in the past, and even more so as I travel and preach, and I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't know, and I hope I'm wrong, but I don't know if I've ever stood in the pulpit of a congregation where I can honestly say, stand in the pulpit and say, you, brethren, have covered 200-mile radius around this city, and I'm glad for that from the end of With the technologies and the ease that we have today, we've got an ease in Zion going on the way that we can travel and communicate. We hadn't done that lately. It's probably the case in most places we could find doors within 100 yards of a building or 200 yards of a building that haven't necessarily been contacted enough. Now, they probably have been contacted, but not enough, at least, to see the fruit being born yet. But the brethren here were that way. It said they sounded out the word of the Lord. When you see the content of their evangelism, that's what it was, the word of the Lord. You see the extent of that evangelism. That's how far and wide it went. And that's important. A church that is a serving church is one that is energetic, one that is elect, one in this case that is exemplary, one that is evangelistic, and let's add number five to that, one also that is earnest. And this is a more difficult word. When we understand the word earnest, uh, I, to me at least, and this is wrong to go this far, but I think of Ernest T. Bass off of Andy Griffiths, what I think of. 
So I have a problem with the word already. It's been made a joke. Earnest just has to do with also similar to their labor of love and such as that, the work of their faith. Earnest means that they put their mind into this. They've seen these things as being important. Now, where are we going to gain that? Verse 9. We had not read it yet. Verse 9. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we, we were, we had unto you, which turned from God to idols to serve the living God. Friends, that took effort in that day. These cities, such as Thessalonica, if Ephesus would be a prime example, as we find about them in Acts chapter 20, when Paul meets with the brethren of the elders at Ephesus, they had been formerly very deeply seated in idolatry. They lived in a society in a time when idol worship, pagan type worship, was rampant and it was the norm. When just to say you serve one God as opposed to many gods, that within itself made you a strange bird. He said, you people, you had an earnestness about you. That is, you put a lot of effort into this. I've told you before, I have a friend who is a former drug addict and such as that. He spent time in prison for that. He, he's one of the most wonderful Bible class teachers I know at this point. He, he's, he's recovered from that. But he can tell you the stories of how difficult it was. Because at one time in his life, those drugs and alcohol, that was his God. And he had to turn from idols, basically. And then lastly, I want to add to this. We've gotten this far. We'll give one more. These people, the serving church, was also expectant. Verse 10 closes the chapter in the context. And to wait for his son from heaven, of whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from wrath to come. Why is it, and I'm going to use my backwards and forward teaching now, why is it that these people could be expected? Why could they wait on the Son of God? Well, it was because they were earnest in what they believed and what they did. It was because they were evangelistic and they knew they could stand before God without the blood of the world on their hands. It was because they were exemplary in that they had received the Word of God with open arms, they had their minds wrapped around it, and they were ready to practice it. It was because these people in Thessalonica, likewise, they were also uh, energetic and they, they had an enthusiasm about them to serve God. All those things, backward, forward, doesn't matter. Five, six of those. That's why. And so I'm, I'm pleased. And, and believe me, who we need to be pleasing is God. I'm not trying to take away from that at all. I suppose what pleases me, I hope, is what pleases God. I'm pleased. <laughs> When I see a congregation that even has a ray of light left in it that practices after this same servant type attitude. And I believe this congregation has it. But I also know this, it could have more of it. We have to serve God the way he serves us. He gives it his all. You can close your Bibles, but not your minds. In John chapter 13, we mentioned the love that is expressed there, verse 34 and 35. Preceding that, Jesus had just given his disciples a great 
physical example of what service or servitude was. He had just come into a room filled with dirty feet on these 12 men, 24 dirty feet. He knelt down on the ground with his own towel, dipped it in some water he had gathered and began to wash their feet. Why? Because he wanted to teach them he was a better man than they were? No. Because he wanted to teach them the type of men he wanted them to be. Servants. Now part of being a servant, and I'm not speaking just men in this, neither is that really generic in that sense, although it involved men in the account. The type of service we do to God does not end at any point this side of eternity, but it does have a beginning. It begins with obedience. When we hear the word of God, we're willing to put all of our faith in it. That is to believe upon it, to trust it. We're willing to confess his name. You know, that's basically what was said of these people. It didn't use those explicit terms, but the church at Thessalonica, they confessed that he was the Lord. They knew who Christ was, how he served on this earth as God in a body, what he died for, being willing to repent of any sin that they had had. It said they turned from God to idol. That is a literal term that could have been could have been expressed in the English language that they repented from God to idols. That's what it is, to turn, to change. But I see a lot of people today that are turning from evil, and that's a wonderful characteristic morally, but they're not necessarily turning toward God. That's important. We turn away from our lives, from ourselves, toward God. To be doing what? To be baptized. Why? Because God commanded it of us. I'm not trying to mention or trying to discuss why God chose baptism, why water washes away sins as we contact the blood. That's all taught biblically. But I don't understand it. I just know it's right. But that's what it takes to become a servant. And then we live our lives to do service to God. At least we all. If you're here tonight and you are a child of God, I want to encourage you to to continue in whatever service you're you're involved in. And if, if there's not enough of that, don't look at my standards. Put yourself against God's standards. We've only discussed a portion of one context. Do I measure up to the standards God's laying forth? Even in a context like this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Am I that way? If not, why not? If I'm not, I've got to draw nigh back unto God. I've got to come before the throne of God and beg of his forgiveness. And do likewise again, repent. To do something new I maybe hadn't done the day before. I pray that you'll do that. This congregation, as well as any other of the Lord's, has to be a serving church. And we're here to serve the world who's lost. We cannot save someone, say we've already taken care of our own salvation through obedience. Why not decide to do whatever's needful in your life tonight while we stand and sing this invitation song?